Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NTCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Medicaid is a health insurance program that was created by the federal government in 1965, and it provides health coverage to low-income individuals and families, including children, pregnant women, and people with disabilities. Despite this program, many low-income individuals do not qualify for Medicaid, and they don't have the resources to pay for private insurance or have health insurance through their employment. To address this gap in coverage, the 2010 Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, provided for Medicaid expansion as a way to increase the access to health care for low-income individuals and provide coverage to individuals and families who were not previously eligible under the original Medicaid program. The Affordable Care Act originally required states to expand Medicaid coverage to all individuals with incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level, but the Supreme Court struck down that provision of the act and states could opt out of the expansion. As a result, some states, including North Carolina, have yet to expand Medicaid. That may change here in North Carolina as the General Assembly considers bills to finally expand Medicaid and provide much needed health benefits to so many in the state. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about the need for Medicaid expansion here in North Carolina and what the future looks like for the General Assembly to pass legislation. Joining us in this discussion, we have Rebecca Cerise. She is a policy advocate with the North Carolina Justice Center Health Advocacy Project. So Rebecca, thank you so much for taking time and joining us this evening. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So let's first start with having you share a little bit about the North Carolina Justice Center and the work of the Health Advocacy Project. Sure. So the North Carolina Justice Center is a 501c3 um, not-for-profit whose mission is simply to eliminate poverty in North Carolina. Nothing big, right? <laughs> um, and the way we do that is we have we look at different issue areas that impact the economic um, health of our North Carolina families and residents, right? Um, so healthcare is one of them, workers' rights, immigrant and refugee rights, education and law, housing and energy and consumer interests, that sort of thing. So, and we do it through several strategies. So we do uh, lobbying, we do advocacy, we do engagement, we do litigation um, and analysis. So um, it's sort of like a full um, 
view of, of sort of what's going on with lots of different tactics and strategies. Um, the Health Advocacy Project is the one that I am part of. Um, and basically, we want to make sure that every single person in North Carolina has the ability to get the health care that they need and they deserve um, without fear of going broke, <laughs> um, you know, and being and 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 when they need it, right? So at the front end, um, so they can get their preventative screenings, so they can keep things from getting worse um, moving forward, which unfortunately is things that, something I've seen a lot of in my work. All right, thank you for that. So um, how did you, speaking of, of your work, how did you get involved in this particular area of advocacy? So in my previous life, I was a documentary filmmaker um, who uh, did a lot of historical documentaries, documentaries on, um, you know, social justice issues, including uh, the North Carolina Fund, which was an anti-poverty organization that was started by Terry Sanford in the late 1960s. And basically what that helped to do for me is made me realize that poverty is a policy choice. Um, and the way to, you know, deal with that is to change policy, right? Um, then my mom, um, about 15 years ago, got breast cancer. Thankfully, she is a breast cancer survivor, but she did not have insurance. And um, we had to navigate that whole system. I mean, and it was absolutely atrocious. Um, she was going through chemo and she lost her hair and one of her breasts and she's throwing up and still having to work. And every day there was collection notices um, to compound her stress, right? Here is someone who should be focusing, who has already a traumatic, you know, diagnosis and who should be focusing on healing and instead is being hounded for money. Even at, at one of her chemo, you know, the financial person came um, to do it. So as you can imagine, <laughs> that got me very involved in trying to figure out how we can make this better, our health, uh, our healthcare situation, which is a profit-based healthcare system. We are the only developed country in the world that does not have some sort of universal um, healthcare system for its people, you know, that sees healthcare as a human right rather than a commodity, um, which is unfortunately what we see it here. Um, and then um, this job came up at the, the Health Advocacy Project that was working with people to amplify their stories of uh, being in the coverage gap, of not being able to access health care. Um, and it was just sort of the marriage of my two passions, you know, storytelling and advocating for people to have better health care. So I, I feel really, really um, lucky to and grateful to have stumbled into this wonderful, wonderful job. Um, although it is very painful sometimes because like I said, there's a lot of pain out there and a lot of loss and a lot of unnecessary suffering that could have been avoided if we had just expanded Medicaid um, 10 years ago when we should have. Mm -hmm. Yes. So so we've been talking about we're going to do a deep dive into Medicaid. And let's start with um, kind of uh, making sure that everyone understands what we mean when we talk about Medicaid. And can you explain you know, what it is, and as you're doing so, can you contrast it to Medicare? So people oftentimes will confuse the two or not real clear about the difference between the two. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's because our healthcare system is incredibly complex. So whoever out there gets those two mixed up, you're certainly not the only one. Um, so Medicare and Medicaid actually were both signed into law at the same time um, in 1965 by Lyndon Johnson. Um, Medicare is specifically for people who are 65 and older or people who have been on social security disability um, for two years. So it's very limited as to um, what it covers. Um, Medicaid was a, is a health insurance system that is meant to cover people with low incomes. Um, uh, so, you know, like something very low, like 48% FPL, federal poverty, um, and children as well. Um, and, and, or if you're blind, elderly, or disabled, those are the other um, categories. There's also family planning Medicaid, and there's pregnancy Medicaid. So, to make things even more confusing. So many, uh, many women actually qualify for pregnancy Medicaid, which actually helps pay for them to give birth. Because as we know, again, uh, very expensive um, to actually have a baby um, in this country. Um, and so actually the majority of babies who are born are paid for by Medicaid, actually. Um, and then the family planning Medicaid is just exactly what it, it's very limited in scope in terms of like what it covers um, for people. So that's, but the majority of it is met of Medicaid is for people with low incomes. Um, and in North Carolina, we have something called a managed care system. So it's private entities that are managing the care of people. So if you become eligible for Medicaid, um, you will choose one of these plans um, that has your doctors in network um, and they will then be in charge of paying for your care. The wonderful thing about Medicaid is that it has very, if if any, very tiny, tiny co-payments, um, like a couple of dollars. There's no premiums at all. So out-of-pocket costs on Medicaid are practically zero, which is fantastic. Of course, the bigger problem is that it has a very, it has a lower reimbursement rate. And so not all providers take Medicaid, in particular for things like dentistry, for example. Um, Medicaid covers some dental work, but good luck finding, you know, a, a dentist that actually takes Medicaid. Um, and there's a lot of onerous paperwork around it as well for providers. But nonetheless, it's still a really good program for people because they have access to the preventative screenings that they need for zero out-of-pocket cost. They can go to their doctor for zero out-of-pocket cost specialists. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Up until, uh, since we don't have Medicaid expansion, one of the big problems with Medicaid is that it is that if you do not have dependent children like myself, you're ineligible for Medicaid. So it doesn't matter how low um, an income that you have, uh, you're not eligible. So that's a big population that will gain coverage uh, when we expand Medicaid in North Carolina, and it's a very exciting time to be a health advocate in North Carolina right now. You know, the uh, both Medicaid and Medicare was a part of the uh, Lyndon Johnson War on Poverty, uh, which was uh, designed to get the uh, government involved in uh, the uh, providing of uh, 
of medical services to needy individuals uh, and certain guidelines put in place. Uh, what is the opposition to uh, the uh, expansion of, uh, of, of Medicaid uh, by those individuals who fought it in 1965 and uh, those individuals who, uh, who fight it now? That's a great, great question. So uh, obviously I'm on your side here and believe that the government does have a role to play in paying for healthcare. In fact, I'm a universal single payer uh, advocate. I believe that we should transform our system. I think um, it's multifold, their opposition. One is an ideological difference. I think that they do not believe, as we believe, that the government has a role to play uh, for people. They do not see healthcare as a human right. Um, and the other thing is that there's a lot of interests that make a lot of money um, from their healthcare, from the healthcare industry. Um, it's it's a you know it's a huge industry, um, and there's lots and lots of money to be had there. And so they are invested in keeping the status quo um, and not expanding healthcare to people. But I think that has changed. Um, now, thank goodness. Um, and they see the federal government is offering a lot of money <laughs> to uh, states that are, ex you know, that are expanding Medicaid and the American Rescue Plan. Um, we um, helped to organize a coalition called the Southerners for Medicaid Expansion, which was the eight southern states that have had not expanded Medicaid. And um, we helped to get that a provision in the American Rescue Plan that offers a financial incentive to states to expand Medicaid. So we're set, because of that incentive, we're set to have about $1.5 billion over two years coming in to North Carolina, you know, to spend as we see fit um, just for expanding Medicaid. On top of that, the federal government covers 90% of the tab for Medicaid expansion. Um, regular Medicaid is like between 63 and 67% is covered by the federal government. Oh, and that, I forgot to mention that Medicaid is jointly run by the state and the federal government. So sorry about that. So it's something that is jointly administered um, and, and paid for. Um, so Therefore, so you have the traditional Medicaid, which is about 63 to 66%, and then the state has to cover the rest. But the expansion population, it's 90%. And so that's a lot more money coming in um, that covers people's health care. And so I think the, the money is a big thing now in our favor, right? That um, there's a lot of money on the table, federal money, to expand Medicaid. Um, they had some other, um, you know, the opposition had some other reasons for not supporting this. They didn't believe that the federal government would stick with the 90% and they thought, you know, oh, it's going to go below and we'll be stuck with the tab. At least that's what they say. Um, they also seem to have some sort of objection to um, giving uh, coverage to um, people that aren't working Um but the vast majority of people who are in this coverage gap are working um, people. They work at low-wage jobs that don't offer benefits. In fact, there's a new report literally that just came out today by United for Respect and Community Catalyst that highlights the need for Medicaid expansion 
especially amongst low-wage workers. Um, United for Respect organizes like Amazon and Walmart workers, um, you know, two massively large companies that do not offer uh, either any or good health insurance, affordable health insurance to their people, um, which is, you know, mind-blowing. So you have all of these folks that right now don't have any, you know, options for health coverage. Hope that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and it did. And, and, and then uh, we have what now has been described or called Obamacare, uh, which uh, came into existence during the uh, presidency of uh, uh, Barack Obama, uh, which led to this notion of expanding it uh, to, the, uh, to the states. Uh, we're going to have to take a break uh, right now. And I uh, want uh, our audience to uh, stay with us as we continue our conversation with uh, Rebecca Solis uh, about uh, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid expansion, Medicare, and uh, whether you should care. Uh, we want to uh, have uh, that discussion uh, since the legislature in, in North Carolina is considering um, finally adopting. Uh, Medicaid uh, expansion in this state. So uh, we want you to stay with us and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue uh, this uh, discussion on Medicaid uh, expansion and the need for uh, governmental support uh, for uh, people who have uh, medical uh, issues uh, and they are in, uh, in poverty. Uh, Rebecca, you, you, you talked about, and I think April mentioned, uh, the uh, poverty rate and who is eligible uh, for uh, for Medicaid. And uh, I, I think a lot of people have problems understanding what it is that we mean when we talk about uh, the uh, poverty rate and uh, what constitutes that. How is that uh, defined? So can you kind of 
uh, help us to understand uh, just what that is and how does it relate to the uh, determination of who's eligible for uh, Medicaid benefits. Absolutely. So there is a measurement called the federal poverty level. Um, I just want to say it's extremely low. Um, I don't think it actually is reflective of how much things cost in real in the real world. So I think there has to be advocacy around raising what the federal poverty level is. Um, but um, let's see. It's I'm trying to um, look up what the so in order to so let's just say 100% of federal poverty for a single person is $12,760 a year so like absolutely um, nothing um, that is when they would qualify to be able to get a, a marketplace subsidy um, because marketplace subsidy so like you said Obamacare you shop for private insurance through the marketplace. Um, and it is offering um, subsidies to people that are 100% of federal poverty level to 400% federal poverty level. And like I said, for one person, that starts at $12,760. So we're talking minuscule amount of money per year. Um, but, and then up to that 400, that's for the subsidies. Um, so now anyone that will be below that um, that is, um, you know, even if they don't have kids, uh, will now be eligible to get Medicaid. And in fact, there's a slight overlap. Um, so from 100 to 138 percent federal poverty, um, that they'll be able to choose whether they want a marketplace plan or they want to get Medicaid. Um, and it's being called, by the way, the new Medicaid expansion program is called uh, NC HealthWorks. So just want your audience to be getting used to hearing what that is, because that is going to be what is going to be offered to people who have traditionally fallen into what we call the coverage gap. And can I quickly explain that? And I, I the federal poverty levels just drive me a little crazy because it's, it's such a ridiculously low amount of money that it's very difficult to say, well, um, this, this is, but you can find the income eligibility for Medicaid um, on the, the webs on the, I believe it's the DHHS, which is the Department of Health and Human Services website. And it goes through uh, family of one, family of two, family of three, um, and that sort of thing. Um, but I will say this for, um, just as an example, and this blew me away. Um, I interviewed a couple years ago, this wonderful woman, Emily, whose son is a diabetic. Um, she was um, originally on Medicaid when she first moved to North Carolina. And then she got a job that gave her, you ready for this? Over $424 a month. And she lost her Medicaid because she earned 400, you know, over that. So that was the limit for her to lose coverage. Again, she said to the person, how can I live on, like, I can't even live on $424 a month. Um, luckily, um, her son could stay on as long as she didn't make over $2,400 a month. But again, we're doing this weird incentive for people not to improve their situation in order to keep 
their health coverage or the health coverage for their children, you know, their loved ones, so they can get the care that they need. It's a very screwed up situation. Um, but I can just quickly explain the coverage gap. Um, April, you brought it up um, about Medicaid expansion being optional. So like I mentioned, the uh, subsidies for the marketplace are, you know, start when you make about 100% federal poverty to 400% federal poverty. So in order to cover people below that in the Affordable Care Act, they created Medicaid expansion. So they would expand Medicaid, which is the health coverage for the people with low incomes, to cover people up to that you know, with that little overlap, the 138, because North Carolina has opted out of that, anyone that falls into that sort of makes too little to qualify, too little, yes, too little to qualify for subsidies, but makes too much or for other reasons, like they don't have dependent children, do not qualify for Medicaid, they don't have any options other than to pay out of pocket full cost for private insurance which again is absolutely bananas. And this is how it's been for 10 years. Our North Carolinian, North Carolinians have struggled to, you know, to find affordable healthcare. And thank goodness we have things like community health centers, which, you know, look at people, you know, actually see patients on a sliding scale and things like that. But, you know, there's no reason, there's no reason that um, people should suffer um, because they got sick and not be able to get the care that they need or go into debt because they get the care that they need. Yeah, and I'd like for you to expand upon that that last point about going into debt. And so you mentioned as you were talking about the um, the center that part of the focus of the North Carolina Justice Center is to eliminate you know, poverty, right? That's the mission of the center. Um, and when we talk about not having health care, can you talk about the collateral consequences as it impacts one's ability to just, you know, survive and, and thrive, how that undercuts one's ability to rise up out of poverty and really works to keep them there? Absolutely. Um, there's so, so much to unpack in what you just asked, but um, Kaiser Health News just released a, a report a couple months ago. 100 million Americans are facing some sort of medical debt. Um, so this is a giant problem that goes beyond Medicaid expansion. Just want to say that there's lots of people that are underinsured, you know, have insurance, but they can't really use it because of high out-of-pocket costs and things like that. But yeah, you get sick you end up in the emergency room, you don't have insurance, you end up getting a huge bill um, that, you know, there's now been something passed that they can't put you in collections immediately and it can't impact your credit score immediately, but that's relatively new. And it also, that doesn't mean that they're actually going to abide by that, unfortunately. So the, then the credit score or people take out a credit card you know, to pay off their medical debt, which by the way, is one of the worst things that you can do because then that medical debt is no longer medical debt, but it becomes consumer debt on your credit card. So anyone in the audience, do not take out a credit card and pay off your medical debt in that way, because you'll have a much better chance of being able to deal with your medical debt if it's not on a credit card. Um, uh, 
because there's lots of different ways. Um, and that might be, we were looking at doing things like um, medical debt clinics, which is not something I know about, but I know um, actually some um, one that just graduated from your wonderful law school um, has been, has done at least one of these, um, you know, medical debt clinics to show people how to deal with it. But what happens when you have all this medical debt? You you can't get a car, you can't get a home. I mean, so many, even places that rent will look at, you know, your credit score. Um, and it just creates this horrible cycle of um, debt and, you know, of being in a cycle of poverty. Um, and on top of that, if you don't have health care and you get sick, that keeps you from working and being productive and, and bringing in money as well. And then if you don't have the ability to get the care that you need, you get worse and worse and worse. I mean, and this has happened, I can't tell you how many stories that people then end up becoming disabled, you know, which again, we, we as the taxpayer end up paying for anyway, which of course I'm fine with that, but what about their quality of life? Like, why don't we just pay for them to get healthcare at the front end um, and keep them healthy so they can continue doing what, um, you know, taking care of their families and providing for themselves. Um, it's, it's a crazy way to do healthcare. I, I, you know, call me crazy, but I don't think anyone should go broke because they got sick. I think it's actually one of the immoral things in our country, um, that that happens. Um, and that I, you know, the other thing that I've noticed is because people are so afraid of going into debt and because our system is so complicated i think that people put off going to the doctor even for things that they might be covered for because they don't know that they're covered for them or they don't think that they're covered for them and and therefore they keep themselves from doing it so there's so much going on there of uh, not having health coverage it's very scary at any point any of us can get sick or have an accident um and, and need medical care. Um, and people should not have to worry about having an astronomical bill and being put in collections like what happened with my mom because they get sick or have an accident. But yeah, it absolutely directly, I mean, we spoke with someone, she was like, this has impacted her ability. You know, she has like $50,000 in medical debt. This has impacted her ability to, you know, rent a place, you know, get a car loan, any of those things. And you need all of these things in order to move forward in your life. You know, you need the ability to pay for things, unfortunately. Rebecca, you know, the... Uh... The General Assembly has, since basically 2010, uh, refused to expand uh, uh, Medicaid uh, in the state of uh, North Carolina. So now we're at uh, 13 years uh, in that uh, in that battle. Uh, what has uh, what's been lost uh, during those uh, 13 years, uh, and uh, how has uh, North Carolinians suffered? as a result of this uh, failure uh, to, uh, to expand uh, Medicaid in the state? Um, you know, the truth of the matter is lives have been lost. People have died um, unnecessarily um, and suffered unnecessarily because we have not done this. Um, and in fact, we held a vigil um, 
our coalition, Health Action NC, held a vigil last July to honor those who have died and suffered in the health coverage gap. These are real people who have real families who love and miss them. Um, and um, that is the truth. People have died. Um, because of of these decisions uh, and also people's health has gotten worse like i just mentioned because if they can't get treated you know at the beginning they end up getting sicker and sicker and sicker um so that is the number one thing that is what keeps me up at night and that's what keeps me inspired to do this work um the other thing is we've lost a ton of money <laughs> um you know which is important as well because as you know we need money in north carolina we have to have a budget a balanced budget that pays for the things that we want to invest in people um, so we've lost a ton of money i mean i'll just say this at the beginning the federal government for the first three years of medicaid expansion when it first came the federal government was willing to pay 100 percent of it 100 percent it would have cost the North Carolina taxpayers, $0 10 years ago to do this. Um, for three years, we would have had all that money coming in. That's gone. Um, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina, they just released um, numbers that they say that $500 million a month is what we're losing right now by not expanding Medicaid. So you also, you know, of course, for me, the, peop, the loss of people and the loss of quality of life for people is the most important, but there's also a huge other price to pay. Oh, rural hospitals, you know, smaller hospitals, hospitals in rural areas that really need it, they've suffered, they've closed because, you know, you have a higher uninsured rate in, you know, rural areas. So more what's called uncompensated care. So care that they have to give that they're not getting reimbursed for. Um, and those hospitals have closed. So it's, it's just, it's a bad, bad, bad situation. So much has been lost to North Carolina because we have not made the decision to expand Medicaid. And um, your point about, you know, the first three years, federal government willing to pay 100%, um, and it's, it's worth underscoring that that federal money comes from the taxes we pay. So all of us here in North Carolina have been contributing to the money that the federal government has been giving to the states who have expanded uh, Medicaid. So here we are, folks in North Carolina, not being able to benefit from the tax dollars. Um, you've done a great job of sharing with us the need why we need Medicaid expansion, the harm that so many people and our state as a whole is suffering as a result of Medicaid not being expanded. And these were things that existed, like these realities and facts that you were sharing with us existed in 2010. So 13 years now, um, since that point in time, can you talk a little bit about why there was the delay why there was so much, and you've talked about some of the opposition a little bit, but why now do we see our North Carolina legislators um, open to finally expanding Medicaid? Okay, so 
you know, I think the opposition came from lots of different areas. Like I mentioned, I think one was ideological. I absolutely think racism had a big part to do with it as well. They didn't want any part of, quote, Obamacare, um, you know, and anything that the first Black president, you know, put on the table. I think that was definitely a part of it. Um, uh, and you know, I, otherwise, you know, honestly, I've tried to figure this out myself and get in their head in hopes of trying to change their mind, right? The last, you know, four and a half years I've been doing this. And um, I don't really understand what their opposition is other than those few things, ideological differences, you know, this sort of, um, you know, and, and the, the racial component um, to it. Uh, what has changed? Well, uh, advocates have done a lot, a lot, a lot of work over the last 10 years to bring attention to this issue, to um, fight to get different stakeholders to support this issue, um, and, and bring money, more money to the table um, to try and change the minds of these legislators. I also think that you have 10 years of research now of the states that have expanded Medicaid and, you know, in every single area, having Medicaid expansion has helped the states. It has not broken their budgets. In fact, the opposite. It has bring it, brought in more money. It has helped people who are having mental health issues and substance use disorder issues. It has helped, you know, um, rural communities and rural hospitals. Um, it has helped people get the cancer diagnoses earlier, so so there's improved health outcomes. I mean, on and on and on. It's positive, positive, positive. It's a win, win, win. Um, and so I think a lot of those different um, things have gone into this moment, um, and that's where we're at, which is very exciting place to be, um, because let's be honest, it's not the most um, welcoming political climate for people that want to fight for things that the people need in North Carolina. And so the fact that we're getting this now is really amazing. And I do really think that the advocates who have been at this for so, so long um, deserve a ton of the credit um, for, for moving this conversation forward. We wouldn't let it go. And I think part of them is just like, we just don't want to deal with it anymore, which that's fine. <laughs> fine with us. We'll take the win however we can get it. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about Medicaid expansion here in North Carolina. And we have with us as a guest here in our Zoom studio, Rebecca Cerise. She is with the North Carolina Justice Center. She is a policy advocate with the Center's Health Advocacy Project. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. 
As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proven leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Again, thank you so very much for staying with us. This is a uh, really a very important topic uh, that we're dealing with uh, here. And we are appreciative to uh, Rebecca Cerise, who is with the North Carolina Justice Center, for taking us through this uh, Medicaid expansion uh, discussion, one that uh, impacts uh, all of us. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, in, in the last segment uh, Rebecca, that uh, across the state in the past 10 years, we have had the closures of a large number of hospitals and medical care uh, facilities. And that is due in large part to the absence of funds that uh, would allow those, uh, those institutions, uh, which had been historically uh, present in these uh, communities now uh, just to dry up and uh, they were not able to afford uh, to uh, deliver medical services to people in those uh, needed uh, communities. And in addition to that, which you did not mention, was the fact that now you see a consolidation of uh, medical care uh, providers uh, in a kind of a monopoly type uh, environment. Uh, how have you been able to measure just how many people per year have been negatively impacted by this uh, absence of uh, Medicare uh, expansion? And what will it take, and this might be a past your pay grade, uh, to uh, reverse, if that's possible, uh, the uh, dire situation that we find ourselves in now? Well, I don't have the numbers that you sort of asked about. Um, I'm not really sure. It's sort of hard to, you know, figure that out in terms of the harm. Um, but it definitely is. I mean, when rural hospitals close, it's um, just bad for that area for so many reasons. Oftentimes, the rural hospitals are the largest employer in those areas. So all those folks then sort of lose their jobs. Also, in terms of economic development, what business wants to move to an area that doesn't have a hospital nearby? Um, you know, so it's it's a, a lose-lose situation for, for rural areas. Also wanted to point out that besides um, hospitals closing, they've also closed a lot of departments in hospitals. So even if the hospital is still there, like labor and delivery is one of them, like even though that a lot of that is covered by Medicaid, it's not a moneymaker for for hospitals. And so a lot of hospitals have closed their labor and delivery department. And what are women supposed to do? I mean, drive an hour and a half to have a baby. I mean, it, it's, it's just a very, very bad situation. You know, um, 
we talked about earlier, th these are all based on policy decisions. So good policy can help to reverse this. Um, one of the things that I really um, like in this new Medicaid expansion bill that has been introduced um, in the General Assembly is there's a loan forgiveness program for any type of providers that want to work in rural areas in North Carolina. Um, so that is fantastic. Um, you know, we want more people to be able to be in those areas uh, where people need them. So that's one good thing. Medicaid expansion is going to bring in this money. So hopefully we'll be able to have, um, you know, uh, rural hospitals staying open, maybe even more more facilities opening in these areas um, to, to sort of help people. Um, you know, there's so many things that we need to do, though, to address health. You know, there's the so-called social determinants of health, which we haven't even talked about, which is, you know, the things in your everyday life that can determine how healthy you're going to be. You know, things like nutrition you know are you in a food desert um, are you able to pay for food I mean we're just going through a situation where emergency food stamps are being stopped for people and people are being set to lose a ton of money here so you know we need to invest in things like that in housing in transportation and mental health um, and substance use disorder treatment um, you know and Definitely in terms of the mental health and substance use disorder treatment, Medicaid expansion can, you know, make a difference because Medicaid does cover um, medication assisted treatment for those suffering from substance use disorder, which is a great thing. Another angle is um, that hopefully this can also keep people from becoming incarcerated. Um, so many people end up incarcerated due to what are essentially, you know, health issues, right? Like mental health and substance use disorder. We have one of our storyteller advocates, you know, who ended up hooked on drugs due to an injury, you know, to a, a, a very painful condition he had that he got prescriptions for and then lost Medicaid, you know, was addicted to these pills, ended up turning to heroin, ended up becoming, you know, incarcerated. And, and then when he gets out and he wants to have a clean and sober life, guess what? He's still not eligible for Medicaid. So we will be helping so many people by expanding Medicaid and allowing people a fresh start or to keep them from even going into prisons and jails in the first place because they can get the help they need, at, you know, again, at the front end when they need it before they do something that lands them um, in incarceration. So there's just so many ways um, that yeah, we can let, reverse let me, this. Yeah, let me just jump in on, on yeah. one, one other point. When you talk about Medic, uh, the absence of medical care, you're talking about the uh, deterioration of the quality of life, which has caused a lot of people in rural areas to leave and go into urban areas where they now have this, uh, this uh, availability uh, to them. But you, you mentioned the, uh, the compromise bill that's in the uh, legislature right now. Can you talk a few minutes about what is included uh, in, uh, in what is uh, deemed to be now the compromise and then uh, the possibility that this compromise will actually pass uh, with other uh, cutbacks uh, in what uh, is being uh, promoted. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the compromise uh, Medicaid expansion bill, which is House Bill 76, um, will create something called North Carolina Health Works, which is the Medicaid expansion program um, that will cover people that are 138% of federal poverty and below, whether they have dependent children or not, which is fantastic. Um, so it will open coverage to a lot more folks. It has some other provisions in there as well. Well, um, like the loan forgiveness that I talked about, um, there's some money in there to help local um, departments of social services deal with increased administrative um, burdens, you know, from additional people coming in. There um, is, yeah, there's, um, there's also a couple of very confusing things um, that are just very hard to wrap your head around, but one of them is called HASP, which is basically hospital stabilization payments by the federal government um, that will reimburse hospitals for Medicaid patients at a rate that's closer to private insurance, um, which was a big big incentive for the leadership and the General Assembly to move forward on this bill. And I think for your hospitals to come to the negotiating table because another, um, and in fact, Phil Berger in, the, in his press conference said that was really um, the main reason that his mind changed was the house money. Um, so obviously that was a really, really big thing. And the hospitals uh, had to come to the negotiating table because there's something called certificate of need in North Carolina. We have the strictest certificate of need laws and certificate a need is basically a bureaucratic process that um, hospitals providers um, and doctor's offices have to go through in order to expand either buildings, bed capacity, imaging machines, like a whole lot of different things um, before they're able to just build those things or buy those things. They have to go through this bureaucratic process to make sure that there's a need for them. Um, we have one of the strictest certificate of needs um, uh, in the entire country. So, and this was something that um, that the North Carolina General Assembly leadership has really, really wanted for years. And so the hospitals, because they're getting these HAS payments in this bill, also came to the negotiating table around um, certificate of need. So there's also certificate of need reforms that are in that bill as well. Um, there is um, some... Uh, potential work requirements, which ha have right now been struck down by the courts, and the Biden administration is not um, approving them. But what it says is that if things change at the federal level, then the North Carolina Department has to sort of go back and institute these work requirements. The only other thing I will say is that right now, um, for Medicaid expansion um, to start, even if this bill is passed, which it looks like it's going to, um, they we have to get approval from CMS, which is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, which is the federal agency that sort of oversees these, um, which we would have to get anyway. We can't just do it. They have to approve it. And then once we have a budget um, for uh, this you know, the next two years. So it's whichever comes later. So both of those things have to happen in order for Medicaid expansion to actually go into effect. But that could still be as early as this summer or late summer or early fall, which means that people's lives will be changed for the better and lives will be saved 
hopefully as early as this fall, which was incredible. So things have moved incredibly quickly. Um, the House bill came out in the middle of February. It passed. Um, Last Thursday, um, Speaker Moore and uh, President, um, Senate President Pro Tem Berger called a press conference to say that they had come to this agreement on this compromise. The Senate bill was introduced this week in Senate Health, um, and it is just breezed through committee. I mean, the, the committee meetings were, have literally been like two minutes, okay? Uh, it's like approved. Um, and so it's gone through, and um, as of now, um, it is potentially set to be voted on as early as next Tuesday. Um, so this is really, really moving quickly. Once it is approved by the Senate, it has to go through these three readings is what it's called. So two on one day and then one has to be the following day. The next step is it goes back to the North Carolina House for something called a concurrence vote. So since the bill started in the House, they um, have to then say we're okay with the amendments that um, the Senate put in here. Um, they do the concurrence vote. We're not seeing, we're not hearing that there's going to be any delay in that. And then unbelievably, it will go to Governor Cooper's desk to be signed. And we know that he will definitely be signing it because this has been one of his priorities for years. So it is a very exciting time um, to be a healthcare advocate um, in North Carolina um, because this is finally going to come to fruition. I, of course, will be really happy once the governor signs it. <laughs> we'll be, be able to breathe a sigh of relief um, because, um, you know, you never know. But for all intents and purposes, it's going to happen. So a very long time coming. It's taken yes. 13 years to get here. Um, can you share what your um, impression is of the community's understanding of, of where we are in the process and, and what's going to happen. And one of the reasons why I, I asked that question is, you know, this is a space in which you, you know, operate all the time. So you're very knowledgeable and familiar with what's going on. Oftentimes when people, you know, are living in poverty, when they're having health issues, they're, they're just trying to survive day to day. And I know one of the concerns that, that you mentioned is making sure that folks are educated. Um, what is your organization doing and what can we, who are interested in making sure the word gets out, what can we do to make sure that those who are most in need of this information um, get it? That's a great question. Um, we are going to have to do everything possible to get um, the information out there. It depends, uh, of course, in terms of the general public, how much they know. It all depends. Um, folks that have young children that are, you know, with low incomes or living in poverty pretty much potentially do know about Medicaid um, or have they gone through a pregnancy and things like that. Now, whether or not they're going to realize that they are eligible for being in this expansion population is what I'm concerned about. Um, you also have a situation, an impending situation that uh, through the public health emergency of COVID, um, the federal government gave us additional money to not kick anyone off Medicaid, right? So we haven't had, so Medicaid, you have to go through this redetermination every year to make sure that you're still 
eligible for Medicaid? Well, for the past three years, there has been no, none of that. So people have been able to stay on Medicaid even if they're no longer eligible. So some of those folks are going to be um, coming off of Medicaid and hopefully be able to go right into this expansion population. Um, but if there's a delay in time, then again, we're going to have to make sure to get the word out um, about it. I think that advocates have done a really good job of trying to explain a very complex situation that, like you said, doesn't impact everybody. I mean, um, directly, you know, um, unless you know folks that um, are living, uh, you know, in poverty, um, you might not know folks that um, rely on Medicaid or, and, and we also don't talk about these things because, you know, we have such a shameful system um, and they, the, you know, to keep away from the shameful system or the idea of it, they have pushed the shame on the individuals, right? So people feel ashamed of these things, although it's not them, it's the system that should be um, shamed. That's a disgrace. But unfortunately, that's a very real thing, especially, you know, um, if you can't pay your bills and all of this other stuff. Um, so yeah, we need we need all hands on deck to help us um, spread the word, especially when it goes live, um, that this is something that you will be eligible for. The positive thing uh, that's also in the bill is um, that they're going to work with the marketplace um, on this. So the um, the ACA uh, exchanges, if the ACA exchange during open enrollment determines that you're eligible for Medicaid, you can just give that determination letter to your local Department of Social Services and you will be eligible for Medicaid. So to make that a little bit, um, you know, easier. So yeah, we're going to need um, lots of uh, education, lots of, um, we're thinking about ads, we're thinking about a lot of different radio ads, we're thinking about a lot of different things um, to make sure that people know that this is going to be something that they are going to be eligible for, um, because it's brand new. And like you said, I'm steeped in this, um, this is what I do for a living, but most people don't really have any idea. I mean, we started this conversation off, right? Like, what's the difference between Medicare and Medicaid? And that's a question I get often. <laughs> well, that just means we'll have to have you back on the show, um, hopefully sooner rather than later with the passive passage of this, uh, this bill and this new law, expanding Medicaid in North Carolina. So we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Rebecca Cerise, who is with the North Carolina Justice Center. She is a policy advocate with the Center's Health Advocacy Project. And we, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and that you'll share this information with your family and friends and community. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.